ready. All right, good morning, everybody. Welcome back to COVID Chats. Here we talk about the tangential and contiguous issues that are surrounding the SARS-CoV-2, otherwise known as the COVID-19 virus. This is the only place where you can have an unfiltered and uncensored conversation about the impacts of the pandemic. I am your host, Mario M. Christie. And I am your host, Eleanor Terrellong. We are now living in Corona time. And the only way our nation can ensure survival is for us to get with get the program. COVID-19 isn't going anywhere. It will be a defining factor in our lives and livelihoods for the foreseeable future. And though a critical public health concern, COVID-19 is not just a public health issue. It is a social, economic, and environmental issue. COVID-19 is a program that will delve into all these issues and impacts caused by the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as our national response. How will we address our national and global sustainability needs during this time? This initiative is powered by the Jamaica Climate Change Youth Council. We're a youth affiliate of the Jamaica Climate Change Advisory Board, and we're doing this in partnership with Environmental Solutions Limited, which is the Caribbean's leading environmental consultancy firm. We want to welcome everyone to this discussion. Thank you again for joining. Please share with us on social media using the hashtags, hashtag COVID chat, hashtag Corona time, hashtag environmental sustainability. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram so you can follow the Jamaica Climate Change Youth Council at our footprint JA. And you can follow ESL at ESL Caribbean on Twitter and at, at, at Envirsol, E-N-V-I-R-S-O-L on Instagram. We are now at our fourth session and we are keeping the momentum. Today, we continue to explore the topic of food security and sustainability. In our last chat, we looked at the various intersectionalities of food security and Jamaica's current position as we aim to achieve a system of food security. This week, we are continuing that discussion. We'll be looking deeper into what we are doing as a country to address the impacts we identified last session, and we'll also be looking at food security from a global perspective. This week, we have some very special guests with us. On the chat now, we have Tatiana von Reinbaben, is that correct? Um, Tatiana is a regional manager at ReFarmed, um, an alternative agricultural uh, company. She'll tell us more about that. We also have my dear friend, Janelle Tomlinson, who is a PhD candidate and youth climate activist. Janelle was also the recipient of the Prime Minister's Youth Award for Environmental um, Service last year. And we also have a special guest with us, Mrs. Patricia Francis, who is the chairperson of the Trade Facilitation Task Force in the Ministry of Industry, Commerce, Agriculture, and Fisheries. We sh also should have on our chat today the Honorable Floyd Green. I'm not sure. Oh, there you are. Hi, Minister Green. Welcome. Thank you all for joining us. Um, at this point, I'm just going to ask each of you um, to just tell us a little bit um, about what you do and I'm going to start with Minister Green and I want you um, Minister Green to in your in your intro notes just tell us specifically what is the role of a state minister um, uh, in relation to, to MICAF. Okay um, thanks really really happy to be a part of this great initiative I want to commend you and the team it's great to see youth 
at the forefront of this discussion, especially in relation to climate change. So I'm State Minister at the Ministry of Industry, Commerce, Agriculture and Fisheries. Um, as the name suggests, we deal with um, industry, commerce and agriculture and fisheries. I normally, having come over last year, I do a lot on the industry and commerce side, um, which is everything from standards through the Bureau of Standards to uh, monitoring those standards through the NCRA to our company's office to foreign trade, trade facilitation to um, cannabis and the Cannabis Licensing Authority. Um, additionally, because we do run a joined up ministry, uh, I really act at the intersection of industry and agriculture. So I am the chairman of the National Agribusiness Council. Um, which is part of our agribusiness strategy. I'm also the chairman of the export growth team, which really looks at driving export. I know we're also working on the manufacturing strategy. So I really sit in, in the middle of the ministry trying to ensure that we have those synergies between industry and agriculture. Um, with COVID-19 and because of um, the fallout in our agricultural sector, um, I think all of the ministry had to really try and coalesce around how we intervene and help our farmers. So I spent a lot of the last few months working with our farmers and working with agencies like RADA in relation to some of the challenges that our farmers face in general, um, but more so in COVID-19 and trying to intervene to ensure that some of those challenges were alleviated. So that's it in a nutshell. Yeah, thank you, Minister Green. Tatiana, how about you? Sure. Thank you so much again. It's really an honor to be part of this. And well, a little bit about myself. I am a digital digital economa. That's what I like to say. I know I have a slight American accent and nobody can figure out where my accent's from. I grew up really all over the place. I'm, well, I have German Mexican passport, but my parents are a huge mix. So four cultures at home. Currently in Mexico, but moving to France soon, I hope. And I have worked in the food taking ag agriculture space for the last two and a half years or so, but I've been involved in it for longer after studying environmental engineering and science. And right now I work part time for a new startup called Reformed. And it's based in Europe for now, but we're really trying to become a global startup where we work with livestock farmers for now, small scale livestock farmers who want to transition out of the livestock industry because it's, it's a tough industry right now. The livestock industry is suffering right now. And we've seen a lot with COVID in the news and helping them transition to the production of plant-based milks at the moment, other products to follow such as oat milk, pea milk, soy milk, maybe also plant-based cheeses in the future, or even just other ingredients that companies that make plant-based products can use. And then we try that these farmers also sell these products locally and that they're made out of local ingredients. So if we're, if it's oat milk, that the oats come from that same country or even from that same farm. And also to make it even more green, that this, these are filled into reusable glass balls that the farmers can wash. Refarmed has existed for a few months now, but we're just about to launch our first two farms in the coming month. But we've been contacted by other farms um, mainly from Europe, but also from the US and um, even in Mexico. And right now, somebody pointed out to me that it would be great to have it here. I think it would be great to have some type of reforms everywhere. So that's what I do with reforms. And when we work with farmers as reform, but just also personally, 
we try to not only address this aspect of transitioning to plant-based milk production, but also help them out with all the other things such as starting um, vegetable patches or fruit orchards or vertical farming and helping out with getting them a community of farmers that support them and mm -hmm. can answer questions they have. And even working a bit with politics, that's part of my other job a bit with just helping the government to help back up farmers more with financial resources. So that's, I think, my job in a nutshell. Okay, thanks, Tatiana. Janelle? So good morning, everyone. Thanks again to Mario and Eleanor for this collaborative effort. I think it has been really great and I'm happy that we're continuing this discussion, particularly as it relates to food security so a bit about me so i'm a scholar activist so that's the academic side and the activism side of climate change agriculture food security so i'm a phd candidate finalizing thank god and my work is based in again agriculture rural communities and it's predicated basically on understanding the issues that farmers have to contend with particularly in the face of a changing climate so I work both with individual farmers and farmers organizations to understand what's been happening, to look at some of the interventions that are currently on the ground, the impact that, that they've had, and to look at their overall readiness for this issue, particularly where climate change and food security is concerned. I'm also affiliated with a women's led initiative, uh, Jamaican Women in Coffee. And here we work with Jamaican women in the Blue Mountains, again, to ensure that there's this idea of um, climate promoting climate smart agriculture and ensuring that no one gets left behind particularly where agriculture and climate change is concerned so i also volunteer with youth groups uh based in climate change and activism and that's more from the youth engagement component but for today i just like to focus specifically on my work in food security with farmers um particularly women particularly those in rural jamaica just in an effort to start to understand their challenges and what opportunities exist uh, especially with climate change being an issue that they'll have to uh, contend with. Thank you. Thank you, Janelle. Mrs. Francis, do you want to tell us a little bit about what you do? You're, you're muted. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me. Um, well, I'm a retired Assistant Secretary General of the United Nations. And um, coming back to Jamaica, I've been engaged uh, High Minister, with Minister Green in particular, on trying to see how we can facilitate the transformation of our borders into more, uh, well, working better, because currently we have 20, 22 agencies working at our borders, and those, and that means confusion. So I've been very much engaged in that, but at the same time, I've also been engaged with the, the Alligator Head Foundation in Portland, where we have been very much uh, looking at how to utilize a sanctuary to really importantly change the whole uh, ecosystem in the in, in 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 the sea, and to and to bring it back to life. And that means not only the fish and the coral and the mangrove and the entire ecosystem, but it also means the communities that live around um, your fishing communities so that you can, you can ensure that you have a healthy community, you have a healthy sea environment, you have a healthy 
and sustainable operations for fisheries. At the same time, I'm also part of an industrial fishery where we have been working to, to help artisanal fisher folk to really transform the way that they, that they um, are engaged in fishing. Because currently they are mainly subsistence um, fishers and we want to see subsistence go away and we want to see real um, economic but sustainable fishing taking place in the country. So um, I'm engaged in a number of different things. And of course, um, I continue to have my, my UN affiliation and um, particularly engaged in the whole business of gender. So I have recently returned from New York where I spent the last year and a half supporting UN women in the transformation of their organization into a more results oriented uh, organization. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm very happily engaged as a retiree. <laughs> all right, thank you very much, Ms. Francis, Mrs. Francis, and thank you to all of our guests. Um, we're looking forward to this conversation. I see that we have a wide cross-section of experience and skills, so I'm very excited. Um, just a reminder to our audience, this is an interactive conversation. We said that this is a space to have unfiltered conversation. So we encourage you to join in, whether you have comments or questions, you can type them directly into the chat box or you can use the raised hand feature in Zoom to pose your questions to our guests um, directly. Remember, we only have an hour and a half, so please keep your questions and comments short and spicy so we have the opportunity to hear from everyone. Thank you. So uh, let's get to it then. We know that COVID-19 has restricted movement globally and even with some countries opening borders, travel and movement is not what it used to be. Agriculture globally has taken a massive hit due to these actions that had served to protect public health. And Minister Green has just admitted to us that our local agricultural sector has seen some impact from all of these actions. I mentioned last episode um, that there's an excess of produce and we have seen it um, at the source due to the closure of massive hotels, restaurants, and other places of entertainment, and also because our markets are forced to reduce um, their opening hours, and some areas had, whole communities had um, lockdowns. This again is highlighting a major deficiency in global food security networks. And today, we want to know where those gaps are. Um, we want to leave this conversation having an idea of how we can fill them to ensure that we do not have a repeat of these issues after COVID-19. So my first question um, actually goes to Minister Green. Last session, we spoke, about, we spoke about the economic, environmental, and social aspects of food security as opportunities to create a firm but adaptable framework for food security in Jamaica. We also um, spoke about some of the projects and initiatives that are being undertaken um, by MICA through various grant fundings. But um, I would like for you, if you can, um, in, any, in any capacity at all, to give our listeners an idea of some of the initiatives that are being undertaken by your ministry to strengthen the food security framework in Jamaica. All right, thank you. Thank, thank you for that question. So yeah, um, COVID-19 caused a significant fallout in relation to our food supply chain um, 
clearly with the tourism industry, the hospitality sector, which was a large part of our market. Um, what you found happening is that people had excess produce in the field because the hotels had closed down. Um, so Michael had to act. You asked about some of the shortcomings and deficiencies. Ones in relation to transportation and in relation to storage, right? And it was brought into sharp focus with COVID. So when things are running normally and people can normally supply their produce as they reap it into markets or into our tourism sector, then the, the issue doesn't look as severe. But even then, we did have times of glut and times of shortage, which speaks to, again, not necessarily a production deficit, but a storage and logistics um, challenge. So what we had to do during the COVID time and something that we plan to strengthen going forward is that we had to directly intervene. So the government, through its stimulus package, put about $240 million to what we call an excess buyback program. So where a number of our farmers had excess produce, the ones who used to supply um, the hotels, then what we did, we directly went into the market. We partnered with persons who had things like refrigerated trucks, who had storage space. A lot of those persons used to support the hotel sector, so they had the capacity and they also uh, had had the free space and through the money provided by the government we literally bought from the farmers those produce and then redistributed them so we redistributed them through a number of channels one um, in some of our quarantine communities we gave them away quite frankly to um, those residents who are under lockdown but we also established mobile farmers markets where we brought in various trucks to different parts of jamaica and um, sold from the back of the truck. And what we found is that, again, significant demand all over, but just not having the access was causing that breakdown in the supply chain. But that has gone actually extraordinarily well. In fact, we have moved about 5 million pounds of produce since we started it. I think we have impacted now over a thousand farmers. We've touched 11 parishes in terms of our excess buyback program. Clearly, it still doesn't deal with the entirety of the fallout, but it um, really helped some of our farmers get through this period, survive this period, and be able to plant again. So in terms of going forward and solving some of those challenges, thankfully, I think based on that reality, um, the Ministry of Finance also recognized that the Ministry of Agriculture and Industry and Commerce would need some additional resources not only to ensure our farmers continue planting, but to guard against some of the challenges that we face. So we got an additional $1 billion in the new project that was tabled, and we plan to use some of that to deal with some of these logistics issues. So we plan to invest some resources into things like refrigerated trucks. We plan to set up storage capacity across Jamaica, especially in the areas that have a high amount of perishable produce. Right, and uh, the idea is going to, have to be a public-private partnership where we will put some resources into building the structures, but try and partner with the private sector, the NGO community, to mm -hmm. operate our farmers groups, cooperatives, to operate these operate these storage facilities, so that one, there can be ownership, there can be longevity, there can be sustainability. Right, I don't really believe that when government runs these things, it is the most efficient way of management. Mm -hmm. So okay. that is some of the things that we're going to do in terms of a long-term response and some of the things that we did in the 
immediate onset of COVID that has really helped. And, and there, there are a few more that I'll speak about, I guess, later on. Okay, thank you. So you actually answered my, my question, because I was actually going to ask about centralizing the movement of produce to having these sorts of storage facilities over the country. That's, yeah, a, that's, so, a, very, that's a very good move, and I'm looking forward to that. And, 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 just, and just to say, um, it, it's not just centralizing. Definitely, the government is going to intervene. But as I said, we really want to spread it out to ensure that cooperatives um, play a part. But I think another big thing which we saw, which we really encourage, is that we encourage our entrepreneurs to get involved in the delivery of fresh produce to homes. And we saw a massive response. And if you were to ask me one of the big positive outcomes out of the crisis of COVID, it would be how many new companies have come about that are helping to deal with our logistic challenge of getting fresh food, locally produced food, to those who need it. So we yes. have a number of companies now, they're online, people can order, they deliver it right to your gate. And these things will survive after COVID because again, they've developed models that can withstand um, when, when things open back up. Mm. That's awesome, awesome stuff. Thank you for that, Minister Green. Um, assume, um, one second, Maria. I see a follow-up what just the minister said was excess produce sent to children's homes, prisons, hospitals, etc. That question coming from... Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and sorry, I should say from early, I won't be able to do with the full run because I do, I'm in the constituency and I do have something at 12, but I'll stay okay. as, as long as possible. Um, yeah, so we did, we did establish relationships to children, home, prisons. In fact, some of it was sent um, free, but a lot of it we established um, reduced purchasing, right? Um, so coming out of the crisis or the prisons was one of the big beneficiaries they got great prices they got first class produce um and our children's home as well so yeah that, that the answer to that is yes we did um supply the prisons and we are still supplying the prisons and the children's homes with with items with the excess food items and we believe that this has now established a fairly solid um new market um, I think a lot of times our prisons and, and, and most institutions, when you are kind of strapped for cash, you look at the cheapest way to, to feed um, the population that you serve, which is oftentimes not the most nutritious, not the best way. One of the things that the excess produce gave us an opportunity to do was also to be able to provide that produce at a reasonable price or at affordable price but it has also said to our farmers that listen you have a market here so if you can raise your production levels if you can maintain this price then you have a market here thank you there seems to be a lot of questions coming in for you um minister let me see if i can take one more before i move on to the next point no problem um, richard is saying that the mobile farmers market has benefited many consumers across the island However, this excess produce currently available since there is no demand from the hotels. However, does the agricultural sector have the capacity to continue these initiatives post-COVID to supply both these mobile farmers markets and hotels? 
Yeah, so very, very good question, Richard. Thank you. Part of what we're trying to do across the sector is, is, is to raise our production capacity, um, is to, in, in essence, get more people into agriculture. And that has been one of, one of my drives. And you will see that being really heightened over the next few months because as we transition, as the excess becomes no more, what we have to transition into is sustainability and security. So we need more people planting quite frankly. We need more people to realize that agriculture is a good investment. And as a government, we need to make it an easier investment. And we're working on that. But the, the easy answer is there will still, because even before COVID, what we used to have, we used to have periods of glut, mm -hmm. right? Where, quite frankly, you would be in St. Elizabeth and tomatoes are being sold for $20 a pound because there are so many tomatoes around and you go into Kingston, or you go into Portmore, or you go into St. Anne, and they can't get tomatoes, right? And tomatoes are there being sold in that marketplace for $120 a pound, right? So even before COVID, even when we were supplying the hotels, we did have periods of excess production, but it's not really excess production. It's just a challenge in the logistics distribution. I believe you will see less of that. Why? One, as a government, we will intervene more if needs be. We recognize that it's very important that our farmers have more secured market so that they will continue to invest in agriculture. But outside of the government, I think more private sector players now recognize that the demand is there. They can get a good price. They can literally go to the field. You know, one of the things that my farmers said to me, it's the most they have seen people come into the fields to buy directly from them. That's a good thing because people now recognize that there's a market out there. So mm -hmm. you will see more of these mobile markets, not necessarily being done by government, but being done by private partners. And in fact, I would say every day during the week now, there's a mobile market. The government probably does one per week. So it has really caught on by the private sector. All right, great. Um, lots of opportunities, uh, lots of opportunities there. So we, coming from that, we touched last week also on social protection mechanisms in related to food security and poverty alleviation. Um, Yannick Page, who was one of our guests in that session, spoke very passionately about the PATH program, as well as the state of our working class citizens. I will sh share an excerpt from the Food and Agricultural Organization State of Food and Agriculture 2015 report, which says, Policy and planning frameworks for rural development, poverty reduction, food security, and nutrition need to articulate the role of agriculture and social protection in moving people out of poverty and hunger, together with a broader set of interventions. So I want to get the opinion from um, Janelle, starting with Janelle. Do you think Jamaica is being intentional in how we use agriculture as a tool for helping people to get out of poverty? So thank you for that question, Mario. So I work a lot with farmers in the field. So mm -hmm. my responses are going to be based on what I have seen and based on the anecdotal kind of responses that I've gotten from farmers. Mm -hmm. So for many of them, and as Minister Green um, pointed out just now, where you have a lot of farmers planting tomatoes, you can end up having um, instances where you see a glut. And as a result, you have recognized that farmers have complained a lot about markets and access to markets. 
So they will tell you that when an, uh, an item is scarce, they'll get a good price, but outside of that, they're not able to capitalize as much as they'd want to um, from that particular crop. So for me, while I think we are making efforts with agriculture, I think we need to deviate away from the business as usual approach that we've had and try to get farmers more into the whole idea of value added where they're able to not only put their produce to use, but they're also able to get a better price for that final product. And mm -hmm. through um, opportunities such as cooperatives and the producer marketing organizations, I think we need to probably revisit the role of many of these uh, local organizations, these grassroots organizations, and to kind of see how best we can have them push some of these agendas forward. So a lot of them talk about the, uh, the, the idea of wanting to go into value-added processing as a way of making more for um, their produce. But for them, it's something that requires a lot of technical capacity, it's something that requires a lot of funding, and it's something that small farmers don't necessarily have access to. Mm -hmm. So when you talk to them about, say, access to funding per se, they'll tell you that, well, as much as we want to be able to access funds from the PC bank or the regular commercial institutions, many of them don't have the collateral to support that. Right. Another thing that I think we need to also look at in seeing agriculture as something that we need to tap into more is how can we use non-traditional um, sort of financing opportunities for these farmers to be able to tap into? Because to be honest, landlessness is a big challenge. And without access to land as a priority or as a main uh, collateral, many of them don't necessarily have access to funding. So how can we use other forms of collateral for them to be able to get loans so that they can see agriculture as not just a hobby or not just mainly for subsistence, but something that their children will see as sustainable and want to go into as well. Mm -hmm. So it's how do we look at our current um, methods? How do we look at what we're doing now and try to make it something that can align with even what is happening on the world market? ICT, using tools, getting farmers um, to use climate information in their farming practices. These are some of the things that we need to push and mm -hmm. while I know it will take a lot of effort, it's something that we need to prioritize if we are going to be able to compete in this free market um, where agriculture is, if our farmers are going to be exporting more, and if it's going to be something sustainable that young people want to tap into. Okay, thanks, Janelle. Uh, Mrs. Francis, any thoughts on this one? Lots of thoughts on this one because um, this is a this is a problem that we've had. I mean, I was involved in Agro Twenty One, where we tried to, and that's in nineteen eighty, where we tried to address this issue of of uh, distribution of post harvest problems and of storage. Mm -hmm. And today we're in twenty twenty, and we're still talking about the same thing. Mm -hmm. But I, I do believe that we are in a different place today than we were in 1980. Because in 1980, I think the private sector were engaging with government uh, to please government, not because they actually believe that it made good business sense. But today, I think we're in a different place where people um, do, do understand that this is something which can, in fact, uh, be a, a rewarding rewarding financially right. but to go back to to the poverty alleviation i think uh, we need a completely different think on how we look at agriculture today and particularly on our small farmer and subsistence farmer um, approach so i think we perpetuate poverty with the way that we go about things today and if you look at europe and you look at how artisanal products are actually marketed and brought to market 
they attract different prices because why? Because they're artisanal, because they are treat they're 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 mainly organic kind of, of products. And in our at Alligator Head, we're in in uh, conjunction with with some others looking at uh, um, uh, looking looking at the whole the whole area of from ridge to reef because mm -hmm. in fact agricultural practices have an impact on um, what happens in the oceans because we have been putting fertilizer and we've been putting pesticides and all of that have been washing into the oceans so we are looking at how is it that we can help farmers to transform the way that they actually conduct their business so that their products can be differentiated and much of what we have learned here in covid with respect to um, a digital the digital economy and how that can actually help to to bring the farmer closer to the market i think this is a critical and important important uh thing that has happened and we need more of that but you know it brings to mind an experience i had in peru where um our previous government had, had confiscated land and, and, and handed it over to, to um, indigenous people. And then uh, cooperatives were created. And this whole supply chain from farm all the way to the cold storages that, that, uh, that actually looked at uh, of, of storing product and the whole marketing of, of fresh produce, not only locally, but internationally, became a seamless, a seamless uh, interaction. Everybody was invested in a part of it. So the farmers were invested, the truckers were invested, the cold storage people were invested, and it worked beautifully. I mean, if you look at the, the exports of Peru over time, you'll see the exponential growth that happened because of this supply chain, which became integrated. And because we don't have that in Jamaica, which is why our supermarkets import, because when they buy local produce that has come from a farm in a non-refrigerated truck, they lose 40 to 50% of the, of the product before they put it on the shelf. So, you know, all of this has to change if we're going to be able to actually realize the full value of what it is that we're doing. The farmer today is losing at least 50% of its value because of post-harvest uh, practices that we have in the country. Thank you, Mrs. Francis. Uh, Minister Green, anything to add to, to those two points? Well, you know, I, I, I agree um, with uh, a large percentage of the, the points that have been raised. Um, clearly in relation to our post-harvest practices um, and some of the losses suffered by the farmers and the challenges in moving from farm to table and the need for government intervention. Hence, um, as, as Pat has said, you know, what you find in Jamaica, a lot of things we have researched, we have spoken of, um, but um, we often fall short on the implementation. Um, uh, I think part of my role here in this space now along this journey is to ensure that we implement right um so these are some of the things that we have recognized for years that there are challenges we're going to move using some of the resources that we have gotten to implement some of these things and i do believe there are challenges and i think general highlighted it in relation to um on the ground and the agencies that 
do treat and concern and touch the small farmer. Part of what we're doing, I'll tell you two things quickly. Part of what we're doing is, is reorganizing RADA. RADA is our Rural Agricultural Development Agency, um, which is supposed to be the, well, is the main agency for providing technical support to our small farmers. But there are challenges. The fact is one extension officer in RADA serves about 2,400 farmers, right? Um, on that ratio, it's very hard to give real technical support to any farmer. So we're reorganizing RADA to at least cut that in half um, by expanding the pool of extension officers. Then we're going to bring in a system of agricultural assistance that will be taken from the communities, largely young people between 18 and 35, that we will train under the whole program to work with farmers, to work with extension officers to give that technical support and then after a year they will be certified in the field one we want to draw more from the communities and two we want to get more young people interested in agriculture so those are some of the initiatives that we that, that we're we're embarking on one last thing we do have now a five-year strategy um, that we finalized last year around agriculture. It's called the National Agribusiness Strategy. And as the name suggests, it's really about tying agriculture to business practices and looking at things like insurance, um, crop insurance, financing of agriculture, looking at things like um, the cold chain, which we, we just discussed, and also things like establishing a proper research and development framework for agricultural sector. Part of the challenge is that we haven't really oftentimes approached agriculture as a business. Um, mm -hmm. It has been approached sometimes as almost like a social service, right? Um, where we don't encourage even those at, at, at the base level to do things like business plans and to ensure that they have a, a, a solid um, set of metrics that can really drive the profitability. Um, we want to instill more of those principles in, in, the, trend, in the agriculture of now. So you'll see more of that. Um, we now have an agribusiness council, and you'll see more of that. Not really rehashing some of the things we already know, but driving implementation. Okay, thank, thank you for that, Minister. I guess that's, that's what we want to, to know, that action is being taken. So we look forward to that and some more engagement um, around those issues. So I'm going to bring it back um, to the FAO's definition of food security that says food security exists when all people at all times have physical, social, and economic access. And we spoke about this at length last week, but, uh, but we, need to, we need to look at this again. Access is ensured when three things are present. We have availability. So food is available at all times. That's, that's what we talk about, physical access accessibility where food can get to the people and people can get to the food of their preference and we spoke about that a while ago again you know with moving the produce into the communities and that speaks about the social access we have attainability where people can afford the food and that's economic access tatiana um i haven't been ignoring you i want you to share with us um at this point what is the framework like in your home country well you're a global citizen in in um your experience or the countries you visited and lived in for meeting these three criteria? Oh, that's a tough one. Because um, I've definitely like been all over the place and also worked in, in Africa, but in, in South America, but then also in, in more like quote unquote developed nations. So I think that's the wrong term, like New Zealand and Europe. 
Yeah, um, I mean, I think it's I think it's hard to to in general say, but for example, to I think I'll I'll just give you an example of what I'm seeing right now with reforms how we're doing it in the in the UK, um, but then also talk a bit about how I'm comparing that with Mexico, where I've seen every thing happening right now with COVID. So in the UK, the government has been taking actions right now and offering um, funding and support for farmers to help, well, them to, to subsist through this whole crisis. But also, obviously, there's been a lot of donation for people to have access to food. However, I think in the long term, the UK has realized now that climate change is happening, that these farmers are struggling with all the climate change happening, that people are, are going to struggle to buy buy the food if there isn't enough of, of what they need, but also if the farmers aren't just producing enough. And I think, well, the government is trying to to push a lot for reforestation and rewilding to be able to keep up this landscape um, in as intact as possible, um, investing in, in water storage and vertical farming companies are considering going up to farmers and helping them grow things in a more sustainable way so they can subsist that way but so that also all these pro um, like all this produce being grown vertical farming for example can be sold locally to help the local community and the farmers themselves i think the uk is not the perfect country but it's an example of how things are slowly working out and also young people are coming in more into this agriculture space at least i see it in the uk and i saw it when i was in california because the farmers reform is working with are more the young people who want to stay in agriculture have the slight business mindset that was just touched upon um, and reform is helping them in one way to be able to produce um, these plant-based products and stay in agriculture while also still serving their local community in an affordable way because we don't want these to be very expensive products we want this to be as local as possible mm -hmm. however for example as a comparison in mexico well, it's Mexico has a lot of problems. We've, um, well, with the new presidency in the past two years, there's been a lot of changes. With the drug cartels, there's been a lot of fear from the whole community, and that's really spiked up recently now. But even in uh, in the past few years, and that's expected for the future. And I do see a lot of younger generation not being interested in farming. And they're not being taken a lot of action to really push that. I do think that with the whole food tech movement I'm in, there's some Mexican friends I have who were abroad and they're coming back now because they want to do something for their own country. And I do see young people wanting to do something in the agriculture space in Mexico to work directly with farmers and be for them to be producing crop like or more new crops that weren't grown so much and trying to export them like the cactus plant the cactus leaf that we eat here a lot are using that for renewable for, for more eco-friendly materials or even for renewable energy and even bringing renewable energy to farmers like solar and wind that's been happening here a lot in mexico however the new president has sadly stopped some of those um some of those projects but i think that's globally something that can be tapped a lot more into to help farmers i sadly think that the problem Mexico has is that it's such a huge population where even these entrepreneurial Mexicans who want to do something for their country it's not enough at this point and that's where countries like like the UK or even Jamaica where we just don't have such a large population it's just a bit easier to get people engaged and interested in agriculture and it's a whole 
the whole aspect of education where we need to teach a lot more about food security and, and food safety in schools and getting people just excited about the field. It's something that I've been doing a bit personally and both reformed in my other job for, um, for his name's Earthling and he's an activist. It, they both try to teach more at schools and universities anywhere when on speaking engagements about all these issues just to get people even interested in agriculture especially younger generations i think that's the main key to even get the whole agriculture space back into the yeah, the main the conversation globally and um, and i think that's how even i got into it because i got excited about it when people started talking to me about the agriculture space and me bringing it up over and over again we need to work with farmers the space i'm in is a lot against farmers especially against livestock farmers and i've said no we cannot work against farmers we need to work with farmers and that's why also our newest campaign together with reformed and my other job and this is the last thing i'll say is um we have made a call to the UK government to help farmers transition from this massive livestock agriculture to more sustainable agriculture slowly, a slow diversification. We've created a whole package for farmers telling them these are your funding sources, these are companies you can work with, these are the organizations you can work with. And there's a lot of young people following this campaign, which we're excited about, and also some government um, groups and MPs getting involved with it. I think this campaign, which is small, but it's gotten quite a lot of interest and we've gotten some bigger names on it, can be replicated quite easily in other countries. So we're just starting that way by, by telling people what resources are out there and getting them just interested in the field. So I hope that, that kind of answered your question. <laughs> Thank you very much. It, it did shed a lot of light on, on what's happening out there outside of Jamaica. Janelle, um, I'm going to give you an even tougher one. You would have had experience with farmers um, from various crops, various parts of the country and um, different countries as well. Considering what Tatiana just explained about her experience um, and what the minister had said earlier, um, what do you think are the opportunities for us here in Jamaica, given our, our reality with um, climate change and everything, to actually implement a framework that ensures these three things um, for food security? Okay, so there are some existing policies. Um, so the food security and nutrition policy and the national food policy, the food safety policy, sorry. So these are some that already exist. and the um food and nutrition security policy personally i think um is geared towards assessing um availability access and stability um so in delving into the policy we do see where considerations are made but as minister green rightly said there is a difference between what exists and what is implemented and so for me, while consideration is given to how are we able to better access food, how do we make food better available, I think a lot of things that have been highlighted that need to be done are yet to be fully operationalized on the ground. So as to opportunities for doing this, again, there's no way for us to be able to assess or to address issues related to farmers and rural communities without engaging them in the process directly. So I am for bottom-up development, I am for mm -hmm. inclusion, and the only way we can seek to help farmers is by having them involved in the development process itself. 
So for opportunities, again, I like the fact that um, there is better engagement or the idea for better engagement of young people and having them sort of as persons on the ground helping to champion the cause in their local communities. So I love that effort. But particularly, as I said, as it relates to the farmers groups, I think they can be better utilized. I think that groups are mobilizing. I work with a lot of groups. And if you see how they put small resources together to be able to effect change, I think that if we have mechanisms in place to fully support our farmers groups, our farmers institutions, not only are they able to be more sustainable, but they're also be, um, able to do greater things and more things in their spaces. They're the ones who know what their challenges are. They're the ones who know exactly what some of the inherent underlying problems are. So having them in the space to kind of help tailor our solutions is something that I think we can better capitalize on as well. Not just having farmers in the space to say we have them there, but also hearing from them what they think can work and won't work and how we can capitalize on them as stakeholders in the process. Again, mm -hmm. I'm all for value added and I work a lot with coffee farmers and in talking to these farmers, you recognize that our coffee is not the only prime commodity that we have. When you hear about Jamaican ginger, when you hear about Jamaican nutmeg, when you hear about cocoa, I think these are things that we can push efforts behind, similar to how we have pushed efforts behind our coffee. So I think if we can tap into other niche markets as well and push that Jamaican identity and the whole idea of brand Jamaica behind these crops as well, it's something that we can get other farmers to tap into. So we can have um, farmers who are concentrated only on cocoa, who supply a particular company, who supply a particular country and just ensuring that we just don't put all our eggs in one basket but we mm -hmm. try to diversify and see how best we can push our Jamaican agenda pushing into these niche markets and ensuring that we capitalize on these things that make our crops so unique okay thank you Janelle um, we have a question here um, from Minister Green Shante is asking as a young person who is interested in agriculture how do they enter the field when they have no background knowledge? Is there an application process for the HOPE training program? Yeah, so, all right, a, a couple of things. And a very good question. One of the things that we realize is that a lot of our young people want to get in, involved in agriculture. They don't know where to turn to. So, in fact, this month, we're now in July, yes? This month, we'll be launching our agricultural roadmap for youth, right? Mm -hmm. um, well, again, one space where we provide all the information regarding how you get involved regarding um where do you turn to in terms of education what are the opportunities where can you turn to for funding where can you turn to for access to land um the 4-h club is driving that charge so to answer the question they can reach out to the 4-h club you know a lot of people think the 4-h club is just a school movement but it's actually a youth agricultural movement worldwide and they have uh, a repository of information for young people who want to get involved in agriculture. So you can reach out to the 4-H Club. We're going to launch that roadmap. I think it's in another two weeks. It will be there will be an online version, also a, a handheld version, right? So you can look out for that. We'll share it and we'll ensure that we share it to your networks as well, Mario. And then they can also reach out to Rada. Yep, mm -hmm. they can reach out to Rada in relation to assistance, um, expertise, advice. Um, somebody will be there to help them. But I would say, if I were to choose the first port of call for a young a youth getting involved in agriculture, it would be the forage. In terms of the application process, we have not yet put that out there. Um, we're going to start with a pilot program, 
right? And um, you can look out for the application process. The program has been delayed a little bit because of COVID, but fortunately we do have the funds to get it done. We want to start with at least nine, 90 young people. We're going to target the parishes that have the biggest agricultural production and I'm going to move forward with that. Let me just say, because unfortunately I have to run, um, I agree with a lot of what Janelle had to say about um, ensuring that we take a bottom-up developmental approach, um, hence why we're trying to do things like the youth agricultural assistance. But I also agree that um, we have been trying to really utilize more the PMOs, the production marketing organizations, or the JS branches, right, to ensure that the farmers lead the process of reform. I have found, I have found in, in everything I've been involved in, when I was at the Ministry of Education, I was looking at youth. If you really want to know what you need to do, you have to talk to the young people. And you have mm -hmm. to not only talk to them, but give them the opportunity to create that change. And it's the same for the farmers. The farmers know the sort of help that they need. And if we give them the opportunity to create that change, we will get it done. And the final thing, I agree regarding diversity and capitalize on the niche markets. What we have done, we have chosen some products that have um, great value-added potential on one hand, but also significant worldwide markets. For example, let's give you one example, our mangoes, yeah? Um, one of the beauties with Jamaica is that based on our, 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 our climate, our soil, our produce have some of the best taste profiles in the entire world. Right, True. so it's very hard to find anything as nice as a Jamaican mango. I know Emma, who is online, will agree with me. And that's what we've been seeing is that there's a significant demand, so we have to ramp up production. So we'll be embarking on a project to put 1,000 acres of former sugar land into mango orchard production. Here yeah, we're going to start. <laughs> See somebody saying Julie mango for the win. Now we're going to have <laughs> a, a argument between Julie and East India. Yeah, right. We're going to start with 60 acres. We want to start. In January, the idea is again, the government will start with 60 acres just to, you know, show it can be done, um, ensure we have the plant in stock, things of that nature. But it's really a public-private partnership. We want to lease the land, especially to farmers groups who can yes. then take on this mango orchard production. And then they will then be the ones who will be selling, selling into the export markets and get real returns. So let me just say, unfortunately, I, I do have to run. You can find me online if you have further questions. Floyd Green J A. I'm across most platforms, and you know, you know how to get to me, Maria, and the team. So please, um, just let me know. If there are any other questions? I'll be sure. And if, if there any other time, I'll be sure to come and join. All right. All right. Thank you, Minister. Thank you so much for joining us. No problem. Would I be able to quickly add on a few things? Tiny. Sure. <laughs> Uh, really small. No, because I absolutely agree with what has been said about working, working really with the farmers and um, just the how to really get involved in the agriculture space. For the first point, um, I should have probably also mentioned this. So with reform, we're not trying to go up to the farmers and tell them this is a solution we propose you and then kind of put it on them. They, we want them to reach out to us. We don't reach out to them. And we really try to go at their pace. Of course, sometimes we have to push a bit for things to happen. And like, can you please give us this or that or find the plumber? But we try to, when we work with farmers, and this has happened also with the ones I've spoken all over the, the world, is to ask them, what are your problems? What else can we help you with? It's not only related to this plant-based milk production, but also if it is um, some other business registration they have to figure out or other fixes they have to do on their farm or other interests they have, 
I think for all of us who work or who have talked with farmers, we know it's hard to warm up to them and it takes a while. And, and it's been exciting for me to see how after many conversations with the same farmers, they slowly start, start telling me more about their problems. And I, I appreciate that so much because I know they trust me. And I think that's something we want to really keep doing. And that's why I also talked to an organization in the UK and I said, hey, we need to get farmers who are in this whole farm transition space, which is a really new space and brings a lot of opposition to get them to find this community of farmers who are in the same space as them, where their neighbors are not really supporting them, but they need that support. But then also invite other curious, like interested farmers who are considering maybe a slow transition in agriculture to get them interested and really leave this conversation up to them and we're just the ones bringing them together. We don't get involved anymore too much except for listening and learning really from them. And then when, when I think just how to learn about agriculture, I, did, I didn't study for agriculture. I took a few science of soils classes and did some basic urban gardening experiences and all over. But I think nowadays you have so many resources online where you can learn about basic agriculture online courses or even just YouTube videos. And that's how I've learned most of it. And I mean, there's great books to read as well, but just even those courses. And there are often farms that have open days you can go to. I don't know how much this is in Jamaica, but I've been to some farms also on Ivory Coast or in Ghana. And, and then I think just a good way to learn there is to just ask the question, to ask the farmers about their whole process. Like, and sometimes they'll tell you quite openly, these are my problems. And these, these are the things I want to do. Ask them what their kids think about their farm. Ask them what they do with the byproduct. So for example, with coffee, yes, we use a coffee bean. But what do we do with a cherry? The cherry is such a big resource that could be used globally. There's so much more to do things. And it's, such a, it's a niche market, but I think that could grow. So it's asking all these questions to farmers, get their points of view, and maybe you'll even plant a seed by raising your questions, from my experience. Mm -hmm. All right, thank you for that, Tatiana. So I've been, I've, we've been getting a lot of comments in the chat box about sustainable fisheries, so I'm going to move it along. Um, so the next point, the next area I want to get into with this, with this talk um, is, of course, climate change. So with that being one of the issues we have to contend with now, there are significant issues related to water availability and management, which also stems, sorry, water availability, which stems from our challenges with water management. This has impacts to public health as well as affects people's capacity to produce. Um, so I want to, the question I'm gonna ask is about how are we going to, how are, how are we able to move forward from the pandemic um, as it relates to water management and food security, given that our traditional methods of farming locally are so very water intensive. And I know at this point, um, the suggestions are gonna come up to move from those methods and get into you know, the aquaponics and stuff like that. So I wanted to start off, let's just jump right into it with Mrs. Francis. Um, Give us some comments on your work um, in sustainable fisheries and how, how this really can help us to, to kind of, you know, whether this issue of water management in farming. Well, water thank you very much. And water management is critical because as I had mentioned previously, the runoff from agriculture into our oceans are polluting our oceans significantly. I mean, mm -hmm. that plus the impact of climate change, that's like a double whammy. Um, so it's critical and important that we look at the methods of, of um, 
of how we how we how we actually practice agriculture and also um, how we manage our water. Um, there are, I, I think probably St. Elizabeth is one of the, the best examples of water management simply because they, they, they practice dry farming there. And um, I think we can learn a lot from that. And if, if obviously if we have access to water that we can drip irrigate rather than flood irrigate, which we do, then I think we'll be much better off than mm -hmm. what uh, currently exists. But to, to go to the fishery, I mean, we know that um, our fishery has been completely devastated. Um, when, you, when, you, when you drive on, on the, the, the roads close to the shoreline and you see fishermen with tiki tiki fish on a fish line, and that's what they're coming in with. I mean, that's what has happened. What has happened is that we, we, we don't allow our fish to mature and we are harvesting them in a juvenile form. And uh, this is happening right across, right across um, the, the country. We also know that many of our mangroves have been devastated, not only from, from um, human interaction, but we, we have had a series of, of um, hurricanes over the last couple of years, which have really damaged our reefs as well. So, I mean, um, if you look at Alligator Head Foundation, I mean, we've only been in operation since 2016 and call it 2017 before you really started doing something. And we've already seen a 400% increase in the, in the biomass, which includes sturgeon, fish, parrot, fish, and snapper in, um, in, in our sanctuary. And it's actually visible. I mean, you can, you can see coral growing. You can actually see fish in when you go snorkeling now. And that's all. And, and um, Arcabessa um, Sanctuary, which has been in existence for, for 10 years. I mean, they have seen 6,700 increase, percent increase in their biomass. So the sanctuaries actually work. There, of course, is um, for, for any gain, there is pain. And in the alligator head area, I mean, we have had a negative impact on 50, about 50 fishermen and who were using, um, using they were doing line fishing and spear fishing and having subsistence living off of the area that is now prohibited for them to, to work in. So, you know, you cannot, you cannot um, take away a man's bread and butter without giving him an alternative. So we have been engaged there in um, training people as lifeguards, um, as, as open water divers and certifying them as fish inspectors, as rescue divers, as CPR training. And we have a fish identification certification program where um, we are going through and we actually give fishermen cameras and we pay them, um, we pay them to take photographs of the fish that they're seeing there. And um, we pay them, we, we, we estimate the size of the fish based on the picture. So we're actually paying them by the pound for taking photographs of, of, the, of the fish so that we can, we can estimate uh, what is happening, the transformation that's taking place inside of, inside of the, um, the, the, uh, the 
area that we have um, as a sanctuary. And of course, um, there are the community projects that we're doing, including education at our schools. And we even have a program that has been developed and is now part of the SBA program for CXC, looking with um, a number of schools that are learning about mangroves. And they actually do practical work in, in mangrove, growing of mangroves, watching, um, helping us to do the, the replanting of mangroves and learning about mangroves, etc. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, the, 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 is, we're talking about an ecosystem. But we also, as in any kind of, of, of um, structure, you have to have an organization that you speak to and you have to have that intermediary organization that represents the voice of the people. So in the same way that we have farmers, farmers um, organizations, we are building and helping to build the, uh, the Fisher organizations and have them properly registered, structured, and this is going very, very well. Um, our whole idea is that it must be that we understand the issues of the fisher folk. You can't come in and, and, and as was said before, you can't come in and impose things upon people. We have taken, um, we have taken a number of our fisher folk overseas to look at how sanctuaries are run and how, how well they're doing in other parts of the world. Um, so this, this whole business of making sure that you have an ecosystem, making sure that the parts of the ecosystem are properly connected, that everybody understands what the end game is and that there is, and that there is a mechanism for communication because when communication falls down, then of course you have, you have problems. And to quickly say something about, um, our specialty crops in the same way that um, we have we have focused on our coffee the fact is that our Ministry of Agriculture needs to shift from thinking about these crops as commodities to specialty foods because you deal with them differently you know I remember when I was growing coffee many many years ago um, I would get from my my rada person a little booklet that told me I put so many condensed cans of NPK on a plant so many times a year and so many matchbox fulls full of whatever whatever on uh, of something else on my plants um, without without my understanding the real um, uh, the, the, the entire life cycle of of a plant and what happens to it and how it needs to be fed how it needs to be watered etc etc so uh, a little bit more sophistication as minister said is critical and important but the building of intermediary organizations is also critical and we in my experience we've done that i've done that in africa i've done that in the caribbean here i've done that in 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 the pacific and in asia and it's always when you when you bring a strong organization which has represented representatives from the full supply chain because you know um, many times people who plant never meet the person who processes and even in our blue mountains hair do our people really understand the end product it's the same thing as when i used to be at jampro and we had garment, we had garment factories. 
and you had ladies who only sew, sew pockets onto, onto a piece of cloth. They never saw the finished garment. And to talk about quality, you need to understand where, where it's going in the market, what does the market expect, and what do you need to do in order to deliver. So I think critical and important, everybody needs to understand the full ecology of the ecosystem. They need to be bought into it. They need to be communicated it. So whether we're talking fisheries, whether we're talking agribusiness, whatever we're talking about, it has to be that people understand where they fit into the picture, what part of the, of the wheel are they contributing to, and how, how their contribution actually makes it the product that you want at the end of the day. And I think if you can accomplish that, then we can, we can transform out of poverty. But right now, um, people don't, don't understand the full picture and therefore they don't understand the consequences of their actions. Mm -hmm. right, thank, thank you for that, Mrs. Francis. Very, very insightful. Um, I'm just over here inspired, like what, what, what th I'm thinking of, of so many projects that Eleanor and I are going to work on in the future um, from this conversation. But Janelle, um, I'm going to bring you back into this conversation because um, we've, we've just heard about um, some issues, um, solutions, and, and their impact for the, the, marine, the marine side. But I want, I want you to tell us how you think this can work for land-based agriculture now. Um, we've, done, we've done work within the, for example, the Hope River watershed, um, which hosts the bulk of um, our coffee, coffee farming in Jamaica. And what we're seeing is that as the climate, the climate situation changes, um, you're seeing different impacts to the water quality and water availability in these areas. Um, what's the outlook like for land-based agriculture um, considering climate change and also considering the need to maintain livelihoods, the need to, to, to feed our population, the need to protect our marine ecosystem. What's the outlook looking like for us? So as Mrs. Francis rightly highlighted, St. Elizabeth has a lot to teach us and a lot of their practices are things that I think can be replicated elsewhere. So for example, mulching is a very big part of their agricultural practice. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty much using dried grass source up as a way to keep the soil cool and kind of help to retain moisture in the soil. So I know it's practiced elsewhere, but it's something that a lot of the farmers in Central Tibet have used and continue to use as a way to, you know, keep the soil cool. Drip irrigation again versus flooded irrigation is something that has to happen because in that way you target the roots of the crop specifically so that it gets sufficient water that is needed at that time. So you don't necessarily have to overuse the resources so you get a, a, an opportunity to target the water specifically to the root in a way to ensure it gets sufficient water that is needed and even in a drought where we know water becomes inaccessible and water is not as readily available again the central farmers have been very innovative in even using plastic bottles as a way for kind of retaining uh, that moisture in the soil so coupling mulching with the idea of drip irrigation so another idea that has emerged is drought resistant crop varieties and looking at how a lot of our current crops can be somewhat modified to be able to withstand out of the drought conditions and something seen in central Elizabeth as well 
is where they cultivate crops, which they consider standing crops, or crops do this that they see as um, able to withstand some of the heat and better able to withstand uh, some of these dry conditions. In helping to start to make these practices standardized, I think out of um, research, and the minister spoke about R&D as something that needs to be better developed. So I think in being able to find um, best practices, how do we standardize it? How do we make it something that's applicable across the board? That's going to take a lot of research, that's going to take a lot of testing in different agro, agro uh, ecological zones as well. But I think seeing how small farmers in Central Lisbon have innovated have used it to their advantage is something that I know can be replicated in other areas. So mulching, um, drought-resistant varieties, conserving water, finding ways. Uh, shade cropping is another thing that happens a lot in coffee-growing communities. That's where you plant smaller, more vulnerable crops within um, larger trees that tend to have wider foliage. So that helps to, you know, reduce some of the heat that comes in. It helps to also keep the soil cooler as well. And that's where the idea of agroforestry comes in essentially. So a lot of our farmers, when they're going to plant, they tend to remove a lot of the trees. They tend to think that, oh, the only way I can have this land available to plant is if I remove all the existing trees. But increasingly, and in a lot of countries, we see where agroforestry is something that's being practiced. And that's where you kind of clear an area and plant within an existing forested area. And this has a lot of benefits that I mentioned before for shade cropping, for helping to keep the soil cool, for helping to reduce exposure of these smaller plants to the sun. And it also helps in ensuring that we're able to retain uh, some of the carbon that's already stored in all of these crops. Because one of the things that we realize, the more we deforest, the more we remove these trees, is the more we allow for the release of emissions because trees are carbon stores. They help to ensure that we remove all the carbon dioxide. And so in removing trees, we're therefore allowing all this to remain in the atmosphere. So if mm -hmm. we continue to utilize some of these traditional practices where agroforestry is concerned, planting within existing forested areas, utilizing mulching, utilizing drought-resistant varieties, and a lot of these other practices and other ways that farmers are coming up with, I think it's something that can be standardized with proper research, with proper testing, again, crop rotation and all these other things, and just to see how best we can, again, incorporate farmers and their experiences into making this something sustainable. Okay, thank you, Janelle. And you, you mentioned the point um, about the trees, you know, being a very important in carbon sequestering. How, how do we get that down to the farmers? How do, we get that inf how do we get that information down to the farmers for them to understand that this is important to you and, and you know, show them how they can actually get the same value um, for their efforts by engaging in um, these kinds of farming practices? So one of the things that we recognize, again, is the idea of communicating to individuals where they are in their specific space. So if we come and tell them that carbon sequestration, we can probably forget about it having any impact. <laughs> so what we probably need to do is to promote the idea that, hey, you know that the ackee tree and the breadfruit tree and all these other trees that you already have in the space, you can continue to use them as they have economic value to you. You know that these trees, they do produce an added value in addition to these crops that you tend to want to go into. So for a farmer that wants to cultivate two acres of potatoes, that wants to go into coffee cultivation, whatever it is, 
I think in focusing so much on coffee, they tend to forget that there are other crafts that have an added value as well. So I do think that in trying to showcase that these trees also do have an economic benefit and in addition to that, we showcase that, oh, and you know that it can help to, you know, ease off the sun off of these crops, you know, it can help to keep your soil cool. Just helping to highlight that, that with their everyday experiences, some of the challenges that they are encountering, that they are facing, can be countered by some of these existing trees that are there that they only see as a nuisance or only see as a problem. Showcasing mm -hmm. the opportunities that can be pre presented from these crafts is something that we have to see how we can tie in. Um, highlighting opportunities, showcasing that, you know, you can benefit from it, you don't need to get rid of it. Just to highlight and to showcase that currently it does have a value and you don't necessarily need to get rid of it. Okay, thank you, Janelle. And I think Tatiana had a, had a comment, um, if you want to share with us at this point, because um, we, we spoke a lot about making the farming attractive, making agriculture, sorry, attractive to persons to want to be engaged in the process. And Tatiana had a comment about um, agrotourism, that's the correct term, ecotourism, agrotourism. You want to share that um, comment with us, Tatiana? Sure. It's also something that I'm still exploring and seeing how I can get more involved in it and also with our current farms. But so one solution that's being proposed to some UK farmers, but also just farmers globally, is that if they, for example, decide to scale back some some production land currently, that they rewild or reforest this land and then allow for tourists to come and either help re grow this land and that's part of a tourist experience or that they just get a tour by the farmers through the lands and it's something that one farm we're working with in the uk which is quite isolated they're offering just tours to um to tourists who want to come and see their farm and then they show them they explain to them something about the trees and the animals on there and it's an experience that more and more people i see are looking for mm -hmm. but if Part of the experience is also helping rewild or reforest the land. It also helps the farmer. So it's a double benefit and it's this more hands-on tourist experience. And as I briefly mentioned in a comment, there's an organization I worked a bit with in New Zealand. And what they do is they go up to people who have land and they tell them, hey, we know you have all this land. Would you be interested in us just bringing a group of tourists or volunteers to plant trees for a day? It's all for free. We bring the trees. And then they mention all the other benefits that come with it. And sometimes it's, well, no, not sometimes, it's always, in this case, native trees. But if these are also native fruit trees or um, trees that could be used for other benefits, like cork, for example, it can be used as an alternative to leather, but without killing the whole tree, it's a, it's a double benefit as well. And it can be a business for the farmers, it can be part of the tourist experience, and it's, and it's a good way, obviously, for carbon sequestration for the land. Hi, Mario. Sorry, Danny here. I just, you know, a COVID check can't pass if I don't jump in and say something for like 60 seconds, right? Okay. Um, I just want to say quickly that adding on to Tatiana's point about the agro-tourism model, um, it's not only just for the elite tourists or people who are just like, oh my gosh, this is what it's like to farm for a day. But um, in Australia, for example, it's a part of the their visa process. So if you're a student, for example, or even just somebody who wants to come to Jamaica and spend some time, um, they have the, or in Australia that case, they had these huge apple orchards and cherry picking where you can come on a six month visa and you spend 30 days working on the farm, for example, and then you make some money and then you can use that to um, <clears throat> travel around Jamaica and then you work another 15 days and then you travel some more. And so it kind of builds into your 
learning about the country but also assisting these farmers and maybe getting like a small stipend if that's possible um, and it exposes you to what it really is like to um, be in agriculture and you take something away and I also just wanted to point out the land degradation neutrality um, program that is a part of the United Nations suite of programs you know they have a lot where basically it speaks to that enhancing and securing um, the ecosystem functions from soil and it's not just about tree planting tree planting is something and rewilding that's something that has to be managed very closely and you can't just say okay there was an X tree here, I'm just gonna replant a mango tree because carbon sequestration, for example. But um, they are in fact uh, structured programs towards um, tree planting and ensuring that you don't lose the soil productivity. The end, bye. Thanks, Daniel. Uh, Mrs. Francis, you had a comment? Yes, I wanted to say two things. Um, in terms of the, the tourism, the, the ecotourism, at Alligator Head, we also um, our our founder is a um, has an organization called TBA Twenty One, which actually um, supports artists and filmmakers uh, who are talking and and an ocean an ocean exploration. And uh, part of what we have been doing is bringing artists in to create create sculptures and things which we are now anchoring in the um in in the sanctuary as an attraction for people to come and actually see those those um those uh um pieces of sculpture and of course they also form part of a a system which which more coral etc can grow on it and and it's really really interesting but i i wanted also to say that the um, the work that's being done on the restoration of mangroves is also about carbon uh, carbon sinking because this is also an important part of our whole ecosystem to to restore our our uh, mangroves and protect our shoreline and finally um, I'm also involved with a project in my old organization um, I have introduced them to to um, Jampro and we are looking at developing a program where we go from um, from farmer to chef and uh, connecting farmers with chefs and, and this is a program that is going to be rolled out shortly here in Jamaica and that way we are also um, trying to, to ensure that farmers get closer to the end product so that the value added that they can have out of the crops that they're growing, especially if they're, if they're growing uh, specialty crops, um, that they can get engaged with the chefs and with companies that are going to also be developing new products. So, you know, what are, what are these value added products? It may not be that the farmer himself can be engaged in the development of new products but he can be engaged in a closer manner than currently exists so that he's getting or she's getting um, more value out of what it is that they're doing. So I think that, you know, there are interesting ways of, you know, getting out of, of poverty. And I think our mindset has been on, um, you know, I keep going back to this, but I truly believe this, you know, 
we are steeped in in you know plantation plantation agriculture and think about banana and sugar and everything else as a as a um a commodity and we spend a lot of time talking about commodities and very little time talking about the real value of what it is that we're doing so we need to make a shift we're not a massive country we can't grow commodities we have to grow hello I mean, there and move away from pointed production, and we need to educate our farmers in that way. Thank you, thank you for that, Mrs. Francis. Very good point. Um, so we are just about at our closing. So I wanted I wanted to leave us with a last point as it relates to sustainability and food security. Are you lose speak? Mrs. So we have an idea of what is being done within the ministry. We have an idea of what is being done on the ground with the farmers from general's perspective. Mrs. Francis gave us um, some very good insight into what is happening from the fisheries side. And then we had Tatiana, of course, giving us an international perspective. Um, I know that there are some questions that didn't get answered, but please connect with us on social media and we will forward them to our guests so that we can keep the conversation going. Um, I see a hand from Mrs. Jones. You want to make a quick comment, Mrs. Jones? Oh no, that was an accident. Oh. No, just a quick, quick comment. Um, I want to thank you all very much. I thought this was an excellent, excellent conversation and and i agree that perhaps you a, a, a third phase or maybe if not sequential um, picking up some of the points for further development would be exciting so i just i just wanted to say thank you very much thank you all very much it was it was great thank you pat good to see you contributing to the to the covid chat and um and to the organizers and and to all the participants it really was good. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm always happy to thank be the contributor as well. Yeah, thank you. Thank you both. Thank you, Mrs. Jones. And thank you, Eleanor, for that summary, even though I think something went wrong with my connection. Our next COVID chat session will be on July 17, and we will be talking about economic sustainability in the age of COVID. We are asking the question at that point, or we will be asking the question at that point, can society recover? So if you missed some of today's dis discussion or you want to listen to it again or share it with a friend, we have a podcast out if you haven't heard the news. Um, we have our three episodes that we've done so far out on our podcast. Um, the name of the po podcast is COVID Chat and you can listen on Spotify, Deezer, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprout and a whole bunch of other platforms. So you can just 
type in COVID chat and you'll get the opportunity to access all of our sessions.